Hello and welcome to Chasing Himalayan Dreams, the podcast. My name is Susan and I'm the author of the best-selling book, Chasing Himalayan Dreams. Have you had dreams you put aside? Do you feel a hiking adventure in the Himalayas is a mountain too far? I believe you can do it if you have a moderate fitness and an inability to let your dreams go. This podcast brings you the book. Every episode is a chapter, like an audiobook. I'm using text-to-speech technology to create every episode. So do start listening and enjoy. Drink. There is no trouble so great or grave that cannot be much diminished by a nice cup of tea. Bernard Paul Ho. The jeep is packed tight with all the gear, backpacks, kitchen and leftover food, with Dale squeezed into the back seat. He's the smallest of us all, he gets that tiny squashed and bumpy seat. Craning out of the window I watch Shriek Hola until it's out of sight. Round and round the curving road we go towards Darjeeling, with Sikkim on one side and India slash Nepal on the other. Power plants and mountain hamlets dot the Sikkim hills as we head towards Rimbik, our lunch stop. Ancient Buddhist shrines, brand new Catholic schools and tiny chapels flash by. A lone figure tramps down the road towards us, and Foon Sok pulls over for a quick word with a smiling young man, who could be his brother. He's the pastor here, he tells me. What day is it? Saturday? Schoolchildren in bright colored blazers and highly polished shoes wave, their faces lit up with joy, arm and eyes sparkling above high cheekbones flushed with pink. Rimbic, sprawls along a winding road with wooded mountain slopes rising on one side and views of the far ranges on the other. After five days of walking, my head spins with the scenes flashing by the window and I'm relieved to settle down to a crawl in the traffic before we stop for lunch. A green lawn fringed with prayer flags and marigolds, with blue plastic chairs around an outdoor table. Overhead, translucent white clouds in the blue cannot obscure the mountain views. In a closed room through a half-opened door, I watch a smoke-black and pan bubble in solitary splendor on a kerosene stove. That takes me back to the kitchens of my early childhood, when kerosene was the big thing in cooking technology, up from wood and coal. Even the glasses of creamy milk seemed flavored with kerosene, and many a glass of milk went into the nearest flower pot when no one was looking. Even as a four-year-old I knew I was lactose intolerant. Well, that's my excuse anyway. Lunch is standard youth hostel fare, rice, dal and sabji. Alas no more delicious food cooked by sham. I'm not too much of a dal person but Keith has too much delicious dal, and this has consequences later. The dreaded rimbic rumble, the cousin to Delhi Belly strikes us on the drive home. Keith must flee behind a tree and dal lay throws up at the side of the road. It's not a good idea for a Sherpa to get car sick, from the merciless ribbing that follows, no sympathy, except from me. Darjeeling gets closer and closer, as we cover as much distance in an hour as we covered in two days on foot. The queen of the hills nestling beneath Kanchenjungari appears, spread over the tops of the ridges in the distance. By now the sleeping Buddha is an old friend. There is still one place I need to see, as a pilgrim, and that is the old Gu Monastery. Built in 1850, Gu Monastery is the oldest Tibetan monastery in this area. We swing off the main road and wind up the steep lane. Gum in Hindi means lost, but Gum is difficult to get lost in, only one road in and the same one out. The narrow road squeezes around bends crowded with shops, parked cars and oncoming traffic. We arrive at five o'clock, as the sun begins to sink, 
and the monastery is closed, even though the sign says, it closes at 5.30 p.m. I peer through the barred entrance, at the gorgeous colors and sheen of the interior, visible even in the dimness of a Darjeeling dusk. On the outside wall, the metal prayer wheels, embossed with prayer script, are worn smooth by the twirling of many pilgrims and tourists. Om Mani Padme Ham. I send up the ancient prayer inscribed on it. Take me on the sacred path to purity. I consider how good still comes out of evil. The sacred Sanskrit scriptures of Buddhism, burned by Muslim invaders in their conquest of Magadha, exist today because of the Tibetan monks who trekked down from these mountain regions, translated them into Tibetan and took them back to Lhasa, centuries before. The monastery perches on the summit of the ridge facing the sleeping Buddha, the edges of the upper roof curl upwards like ripples reaching to the sky. Golden figures, dragons and sacred emblems cover every inch of the walls, no austere asceticism here. The colors throb with a wild passion in the fading light. I couldn't get in, and according to his Asian journal, Thomas Merton, was thwarted here too, in his quest for the Buddhist master, Chatral Rinpoche. He had to go down to a tiny nunnery where the Rinpoche was supervising the painting of a sacred mural. Gum is the highest point on the course Yong Darjeeling Road. The road unravels downwards, back through the chaotic bazaar, and into a crawling queue for police checks. No, they're not looking for me, or any other technical writers. The young cop glances through the window and waves us away. They're making sure no known agitators re-enter Darjeeling by car. The mobs that rioted and destroyed were shipped in, not locals, the media insists. Goom railway station inches by. With its tall arches and red brick portals, it retains a Harry Potterish Raja plomb despite the grimy bazaar pressing hard on its edges. The steam engines hiss loudly to build up power as they draw a deep breath for the last uphill leg to Darjeeling. The train is running only from Goom to Darjeeling this month. I wave goodbye to the train. I did not get to ride on this trip. An excuse to come back, if I need one. Up through the crammed and twisty bazaar, Kiventa still teeters on the edge between two streets. Half of it seems burnt out. What happened here? I remember the Kalimpong Homes chocolate bars that we used to buy from there. Glenary's glitters with Christmas tack, we drive through Charistha and the mall, all faded glory and ugly statues. The car halts, it's the end of the trek. In a muddle of unloading backpacks, it's goodbye to the team that made this trip possible for us. We'll see Funtsop tomorrow, but we don't know when we will see the others. In under a week we've become like a family. It doesn't take a lot to build relationships when there are no phones hollowing out our time. These guys have helped me to achieve my dream, and come back safe, if a bit breathless. Hotel Little Tibet has treated us to a luxury room, I was looking forward to a long hot bath, but one last evening in Darjeeling gets me out the door. I want to have the famous Glenary's high tea, in the glass-lined tea room that looks out over the mountains. We abandon our luggage and go straight back out onto the mall. We did wash our hands and faces though. The soft mountain darkness falls as we stroll down the mall towards Charistha. I move closer to Keith as a dark tunnel swallows us with dim lights of the shops ahead. The road is dark and lonely, but here comes a mother and toddler striding past us in the opposite direction. I realize my fears are forty years old, from the rule of the hostel, never to walk on the mall road after dark, and always take the crowded bazaar route back to our hostel on Leibong Cart Road. It's too early for street lights as we cross Charasta and turn right, past street hawkers selling momos and kebabs, 
past a huge Bengal Crafts Emporium empty of customers, until we reach Glenary's, lit up with a Christmas tree and lights. The shelves spill over with Christmas goodies and it's packed with tourists up from the plains, wondering what to eat. We retreat to the cafe to escape the crowds and find a table in the corner. The waiter arrives to take our order. It has to be Darjeeling tea, in a pot. When it arrives, the hot fragrant tea steams in a perfect silver teapot, and I lift the lid to inhale the elegant flavors of muscatel and mountain air. It's almost too good to drink. Perfect. Darjeeling tea must always be leaf tea, and a pale golden hue, I let it steep for a minute before pouring it into the white china cups through a silver strainer. This tea is not five kilometers from its bush, that is still blooming somewhere on a mist-wreathed mountain slope. What is afternoon tea without cakes? And my favorite, lemon tarts and almond cakes. I still make lemon tarts in this style at home, from my mum's secret recipe. And the almond cakes take me back to the famous apple cakes from the now defunct Fatima Bakery in Bangalore. Yes, the fruit cakes were baked in little rounds and iced like apples. But unlike Glenary's, Fatima Bakery, like many other Bangalore landmarks has gone. I must have a photograph in Glenary's. Alas my phone battery is flat. I narrow my eyes and scan the other diners here. Two girls at the next table are absorbed in their phones. Would they be annoyed? I lean across with a smile and a hello. Italian and Serbian, they are delighted to chat and take a photograph of us and email it to us. And they're on a huge trip, through Burma, then to Varanasi and Bodh Gaya. Though fascinated with us under food trek, theirs is more of a spiritual mission. We exchange emails. A social worker and a midwife, they are full of life and regretful to be at the end of their trip. They are heading back to be home for Christmas. Their fascinating tales of Rangoon and Mandalay, and all the golden temples that festoon the land tempt me to plan a visit to Myanmar or Burma. Glenary's is a golden cocoon of brightness against the darkness that has enveloped the hills, then all the lights come on as if the sky has fallen down, stars and all. The Christmas decorations are out in force, with a posse of wide-eyed kids gaping at the blinking lights of a decorated tree. The sweets and cookies are delicious Christmas fare, fudge and shortbread and moist dark Christmas cake studded with gleaming dried fruit. I buy some goodies as gifts and then we wander out again, pretending to be tourists. What's different from last time I was here? There was no street food, but now girls with big steam pots are making momos and grilling kebabs. More vegetarian restaurants and bigger crowds, happy times for Darjeeling merchants. Sadly, the Darjeeling tea shop, to buy fresh Darjeeling tea, is closed. Charasti used to be an open space but it's now crammed with ugly statues and an artificial mythical landscape. Why build an artificial landscape when all you must do is to look out and see Kanchenjunga itself? Now you must walk to Sundakfu for an unfettered vista. We walk back towards the hotel, and there appear to be no lights on at the Windermere, looming above, occupying prime real estate in Darjeeling. The gate is open and a Chowkidar huddles in blankets inside a ghostly box-like edifice. The original plan was to stay in the Windermere and write the first draft of the book, but that didn't happen. Next time perhaps. It's back to Little Tibet again, and we are the only guests for dinner. The waiters perk up and tell us yes, we are the only ones in the hotel. That is surprising because when we get back to our room, the luxury room, we hear a lot of banging and thumping in the room next door. And a baby is crying, but it quietens, and I wonder if sound carries from afar. I enjoy breathing the thicker air. That joy is much underrated, 
as well as the joys of having piping hot water. I'm careful not to waste water, as despite the incessant rain, Darjeeling has a water delivery problem. At Loreto, our hostel, and boarding school, endless lines of drying clothes festooned the laundry, a long low building clinging to the edge of mountain below the school. When our dirty clothes disappeared into the moor of that grubby building no one knew when they would come back. A friend had her heart set on wearing a particular shirt to the all-important annual Gymkhana dance, but it didn't come back in time. The shirt went to the dance though, we saw it gyrating vigorously, on the Dobie's sun. And after that, of course, she never wore it again. We pack quickly. We have a flight from Bagdogra in the morning, and it's a long way down the mountain and only one road. I have one last set of clean clothes, packed safe in its own Ziploc bag, so that we can arrive in Calcutta looking civilized and not like a pair of grubby hikers. The only clue would be my heavy boots and the backpack. Don't forget that Calcutta was once the capital of the empire on which the sun never set. I don't like to appear in Calcutta, ungroomed and unkempt. I take some time to write up my journal for the day. Capturing facts is easy, writing down memories and feelings is harder. Hot water, soft beds and a warm room, what else? But my eyes close. Sleep at last, for the whole night. Air, water and sleep, what could be better? Walking to Sundakfu and seeing the mountain panoramas unfold around you. I hope you enjoyed this chapter of my book. If you liked it, send me a message or let me know. You can find the ebook or print book on Amazon. Also, there's a free book of Himalayan mandalas for you to color in on my website susanjaganath.com/freebies. Keep listening.